Welcome to the Corner Booth with Chris and Barry. I'm Chris Tripoli, hosting with my friend Barry Schuster, the editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks a lot. I'm really looking forward to talking to our guests today. They're going to tell us a story how they went from restaurant dreamer to successful restaurant operator. We're going to find out how they did it and more importantly, why they did it. And I'd like to give a special shout out to companies that support the independent restaurant operator, like today's sponsor, ARF Financial. They support uh, restaurants by providing financing, whether you need operational stability, you're ready to expand, you just want to upgrade equipment or renovate something, and more. They've been doing this since 2001. They've been helping uh, independent operators get money and they're good people. Check them out. They need to keep it going. If you're a listener and you'd like to learn a little bit more about their funding and how it might help you, just go to their website, arffinancial.com. So welcome to the corner booth. Grab a seat, get a drink, and listen in. Today's guest is Philip Sitter, the president of King's Group, actually managing two brands now, King's Beer House and Egg House Restaurants. Philip, welcome to the Corner Booth. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Barry, uh, let's start with Philip talking a little bit about his entry into this crazy business and how you were started with your first concept. And tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, we have an interesting story. My dad and I immigrated from Austria in 1996. It would be five generations now that my family's been in the restaurant business. And my dad had about 22 restaurants, not at one time but overall in Austria, Hungary, Switzerland. So a lot of times when you're in restaurants, it kind of something that you inherit, right? You just had to yeah, do Yeah, you this. just, right. And it was kind of already predetermined, predestined for me. <laughs> if you want to stay in the family. Yeah, that's that's right. But, you know, if, if you would have looked at our start, you would have never thought we would have gotten into the restaurant business. So we moved in 1996. I'll, I'll skip all the way down to 2009. And in 2009, we had a car wash called King's Hand Car Wash. And we just, it was Hurricane Ike happened. Guy wanted to sell us property. It was one of those car washes. You put the quarters in and my dad and I looked at it and we're like, hey, what if we bought this property and instead of people putting quarters in the washer cars, we would wash the cars for them, right? <laughs> that, 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 that's how entrepreneur, that's how you start as an entrepreneur, right? <laughs> is you look for a need. No one wants to do the quarters, hey, I'll do it for you, right? So that, that's how we started and we learned how to wash cars and detail cars. 2009, King's Hand Car Wash opened. My dad has the thick Austrian accent. What I joke is he's got the accent and I just have the lederhosen because I have zero accent. I'm, I'm <laughs> I moved here when I was five, so I wish I had an accent. It would be a lot cooler if I did. But um, but anyways, he uh, he and I, he was around 55 years old. I was around 17, and we opened King's Hand Car Wash together. I was the manager and operator, uh, and my dad really on his hands and knees washing cars with me. It wasn't, you know, this glamorous thing. We owned a car wash and just watched the money roll in. It was really one of these things in the Texas heat. Imagine F-250, F-350, Suburban. Hard all of the cars are black for some reason. <laughs> you're, you're washing. You're washing these cars. And uh, we started getting pretty popular because, you know, at King's Hand Car Wash, you get the royal treatment, right? And so, <laughs> and so we uh, we got pretty popular. And what happened was on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays, 90% of the population would want to wash their cars that day. And the line would get really long. It would take us 45 minutes to wash a car. And my dad thought about, you know what? What if I put on my lederhosen and I took bratwurst and beer and I gave it for free to the customers while they wait? And, that, and really, that is how our restaurant started. We uh, took a grill, put it right in next to the car that we were detailing for you. We got you know, a brat bun, put a real authentic German bratwurst on there. My dad made the sauerkraut. He made some potato salad. 
He uh, had beer. You know, that that was an issue because in Europe, if you're taller than the bar, you can get a beer. So I'm there coaching my dad. No, you have to check their ID. And he's like, an ID. You don't have to check an ID. And I'm like, yeah, you really do. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're out there doing that. We're giving out free brats, beer, all these sort of things. And about a month later, the city of Pearland, where our first restaurants in Pearland, Texas, right outside of Houston, they came and they're like, Hans, you cannot just give out brats and beer while you're washing cars. You need this permit and that permit and health inspection. And of course, uh, incredibly overwhelming, right? We're just like, we're just trying to give out free brats and beer, right? Oh, but boy. this is 2000, this is 2009. So that's how the dream started. I, I was uh, somehow got in the classic car business and started selling classic cars and I was going to LSU and all of a sudden we had just a little cash saved up and my dad started building out King's Beer Garden, which is on the same property as King's Sand Car Wash. 45 seat restaurant, used to be a computer shop, no AC, literally the first five employees from Craigslist that got hired. If you had a pulse, you were hired. Oh, boy. <laughs> that, that was it, right? Small kitchen. Uh, like I said, very, very small restaurant. Nothing glamorous there. So I come back to help my dad open the restaurant during finals of my freshman year. And then I realize, oh my God, my dad is not going to do well in the American market. He's like, you know, like the Austrian Gordon Ramsay, if you will, right? He's just like, this is just not going to work. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'll transfer to the, uh, U of H in Houston and I'll help him and get everything set up. And I was going to school to either, you know, be an attorney or uh, something in business business, you know, was not planning on running the restaurant with my dad. That summer, I went all in, started really learning the business and uh, went to Austria for a little R&D. My first time back in 18 years or 16 years, something like that. And I really fell in love with the culture and I felt like, oh, you know what, I can bring something like this uh, to Pearland and get people excited about it. So that's how we started. And we'll fast forward that story. And we won the number one German restaurant in America for multiple years in a row. Top 12 beer gardens in America, number two of the top 150 best workplaces and a lot of awards and accolades. And then we opened up King's Beer House and now we're franchising King's Beer House. We already have two locations set. And we have our breakfast concept. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, I mean, you do hear in this business unusual stories of how people jump into the business, but not too many. Not from Born in another country, started washing cars and passing out. Yeah, we went, we went from 45 seats to 350 seat restaurant in about four years. So every dollar that we had, we reinvested and built, uh, built the restaurant. I mean, if you go to our Pearland, our original location, we've been featured on the travel channel channel, number two of the best eats. And it really is a hodgepodge sort of restaurant that, I mean, the dining room is where we used to detail cars and we used to do oil inspections, right? So it's a, it's a very interesting place and uh, we're really grateful for that history. One of the things you talked about, Philip, offline, which uh, I really found interesting um, earlier, is that you said your approach to business is uh, not to make any assumptions, but to look around you, um, see what other people are doing, uh, see what guests want. Um, right. When did you when did you start adopting that approach to the business? Was that pretty early on? And, and, and tell us about that philosophy, because I think it's an important message here. You know, I was really fortunate if I look back because I never had any training or experience in the business. So when you get into a business and you already have no assumptions because you have no training and, you know, I wasn't classically trained. I wasn't a manager at a restaurant for 20 years and decided to open up my own restaurant. I had to learn with a complete clean canvas. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I learned the restaurant business and, you know, of course I educated myself because I had to. I wasn't going to just be in a business and not educate myself and just be the same operator for year after year after year. I mean, that's a 
trap I would never want to fall in. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing that I did is I never wanted to be in the restaurant business. So I also educated myself outside of the business. I started reading about Google. I started reading about Zappos and how they treat their employees. How did Apple build a raving fan culture and a brand? I would go to seminars. I would do all these things that were cross industry education to really build that first concept, something that, that was beyond what restaurants were doing. And we really built an incredible raving fan culture at our restaurant. We have over 4,000 members in our Stein Club that paid $175 to be part of a restaurant membership. Mm -hmm. That you know, And like I said, we won top workplaces. And I just took that and we started developing new concept, King's Beer House and Egg House Gourmet. And I just doubled down on that. And right now, the age that we're living in, in my opinion, is the easiest time to ever create a concept. It is so easy to create a concept. And the reason why I say that is because you have so much access. I can go online and I can go to New York and LA without getting a plane ticket. I can look at the most followed concept in all of New York and LA and I can see exactly what they're serving. I can go and see exactly what dish are people posting the most photos of. I can go on Google and look inside their restaurant to the exact tea of sure. their design and I can completely skip the learning curve. And I don't have to assume, do I think a tequila bar in Houston would work? I could look at every tequila bar in LA, New York, Vegas, wherever, New Orleans, and say, what patterns am I seeing yeah. that customers really respond to? Mm -hmm. And how do I apply that to Houston? But wow. before we get into the development uh, process and how it resulted in a second concept, which is incredible, and I want to go there, you mentioned some really good points that I think the listeners would profit by. If we could go back and say, once you did start learning about the culture development right. in these other really good but non-restaurant uh, successful companies, um, how did that approach then work in your existing? restaurant. Uh, uh, how did it impact staff? Uh, how did you take some of those tips and develop management team? Right. Because uh, that sounds incredible to me. So with culture, we started looking at who has the best culture. It's as easy as a Google search. Who has the best culture? <laughs> You know, what, you know, what business has the happiest employees? My God, the amount of articles, the amount of research, the amount of tools that you'll get. It's as simple as reading it and applying it to how it applies to your business. It is that simple. I look at it and I say, Hey, okay, well, all these uh, restaurants, uh, excuse me, all these other businesses, what they're doing is they're really valuing their employees, right? Okay. They all talk about how important it is to treat your employees right, how important it is to develop your employees, your management. So what I do, all my managers go to a Tony Robbins seminar. I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan, okay. and so I send all my managers there, right? That's important for me. Then what I do is I train my management on how we talk and how we appreciate our staff. We close down one day a year for Employee Appreciation Day. We pay all the costs. We go to an incredible experience. We okay. take every employee out. We add incredible value to the business. With On the kitchen side, we bring cakes. We celebrate everyone's birthday. We do all these little micro things that really, really stack up. And for me, as a restaurant owner, the moment that I hear my management belittling or not developing somebody, I cut it out completely. All these cultures that you see, you know, that's good for television does not exist in a great business. And so when I look at it, I tell my management, your number one job and your number one metric is the development of your staff. There you go. I want to so, see how you do that. So that's a value. There's appreciation there and there's management engagement with staff are the three points that I hear that you yeah, seem to be part doing of, regularly. Part, part of their bonus structure is how does their staff rate them? Excellent. You, you lead off with culture and um, I'm fascinated by that because you're not the first guest here who has underlined and highlighted that um, term and that concept as being critical to success. What kind of amazes me is that some of these people are highly experienced operators and found out 
maybe through the hard way that culture was critical. Mm -hmm. You're a young guy and you seem to figure this out very early. What, what, uh, what made you home in on culture as being such a critical success factor yeah. going forward? And, and if you could tell me a little bit about where the inspiration came from that. So I'll just put it to really simple terms. I, in this business or any business that you're truly an entrepreneur in, you have to work 60, 70, 80, 100 hours a week, whatever it takes type attitude, if you're actually going to be successful, right? There's no passive way to do this. If I'm going to be in the building for that long, my God, I have to like the people I work with. Mm -hmm. I, I Just for my own personal thing, I mean, could you imagine working in the building for 80, 100 hours a week and having people dislike you? It's just incredible why you would even think that. Why you would think that's okay. And so when I saw the research that 87% uh, of people don't like their jobs and 54 of that 87, 54% of that 87, they actually sabotage their employer. And I look at the, I look at the data and I'm like, my God, I have to become a better operator. I have to learn the value of this because not because I'm just this incredibly altru uh, altruistic person, mm -hmm. but because it makes good business sense. And it's going to make you successful. It's going to make us successful. It's going to make us profitable. I'm going to like my job. I'm going to like what I do. And why not focus on that just on a purely on a, on a purely profit side and a pure employee, employee happiness and your personal happiness. And so that's what inspired me to really look at that. Is that helping you in terms of attracting labor and just as importantly, reducing turnover? Um, everything. Okay. Everything. Absolutely. Excellent. So how has that impacted your structure, um, your role from the long hours, the one unit, and then how you reconcepted that unit to open up a second one? Um, how did you develop your support team? Uh, can you describe maybe a little bit about yeah. that structure, their roles, and how everyone interacts? You know, one thing, I just made culture and I made everything sound so great and grandiose, but it has been more difficult as well. And the reason why it's been more difficult is when you're hiring and you're expanding what you're talking about, yeah. it is very difficult to find people that aren't homegrown because, you know, expansion, you can't just have all homegrown people especially that have been in corporate America and been part of this pattern for the last 20 years to be able to buy in and be able to take that and influence that going forward, right? Very easy to do with one location. It was super easy for me to do because I was there all the time. Now that we have multiple locations and franchisees, then it becomes more difficult. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 Um, so is the structure relying on a general manager's interpretation of your goals and implementing it in every unit? Or do you have other uh, roles that right. check and double check? So at first, when, when I started expanding, I looked at people's resume and I gave people credit for the resume. And I was like, you know what? This guy has been in the business for 25 years. We're paying him X amount. Surely he's going to know more than I do. I'm going to let him do his thing. That was a huge mistake. Okay. So for anybody out there that is going from one unit to multiple units, whatever got you successful is going to continue to get you successful, right? And don't take other people and let them change your business in that route if it's been working for you. And so I did that and I had to change that within the first six to eight months. Gotcha. I had to go back into what we were doing and the results after we did that were much better than the results of just hiring somebody and expecting them, you know what, I'm paying this guy for this, he's got this much experience, he's going to do the job. That doesn't really work that way. So that's more than I see. You're, you're valuing really them being more compatible with yes. your ways right. and being able to fit in that's rather right. than how capable they may have been in the past. 
That's exactly right. Good point. And I'm hearing uh, an owner with a, a very strong vision of how that culture is supposed to be in, in the restaurant. So um, the next question I would have, well, uh, is, is, there, is there a pretty uh, formalized onboarding process? So I'd imagine yes. um, you know, you're going to be hiring folks who, are, who have the right attitude to start, but um, I imagine you need to bring them up to where you want them to be. That's exactly right. So when we do onboarding of managers, employees, one of the first things that we do that really changed our business, I went to PALS Business Excellence. So this is not my idea. This is a place in, uh, in Tennessee called PALS. What they do is they make it really clear, you know, on the orientation process. But what they also do is they have an orientation checklist. With this orientation checklist, it says yes, no, and what it says. And you say, okay, yes, no, employee uniform. You explain the employee uniform. Do you agree? Yes. They check yes. They go all the way down, and then you, and then the manager or the employee has to sign it. So you've got about a 50-point checklist that they're with their hand saying, yes, yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. And then they're signing. The moment somebody comes up and they break one of those codes, employee uniforms, or the moment somebody doesn't add value, somebody belittles something, whatever it is, you pull out that checklist. Is this your signature? Yes. Okay. Are these your check marks? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Remember when you got hired and we agreed upon all this? Remember when we talked about all this? You do? Okay. Let's make sure that we keep this because this is the person hired. Because people seem to forget, oh, I was never trained about that. You never told me about that. Mm -hmm. You never did so forth and so on. That little tool of them checking yes, all the way down, signing, putting in their employee file, that's a great reminder. And like I said, we bonus our managers based off of it. It's 20% of their entire bonus about the, you know, the culture side of things. And then, you know, the rest are metrics and how they do on their audit. And there's a, there's a bunch of uh, tools that we use for that. But we make it a focus and we make it where if you don't do it, we're aware of it. And if you don't do it, we make you aware of it. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And boiling it down to something that simple helps the engagement process. Because if I'm a part of that, if I'm the one that did the signing and the checking, there's also that little That's right. uh, part of ownership. I did that. And it's your signature, it's your check marks, and yes, we did talk about this. It is. It's it's simple, but it's direct. And and the other thing that uh, um, I love what you... You talked about with PALS, and I'm gonna. That's gonna lead into my next question. Uh, for those uh, listeners who are not familiar with PALS, uh, it is a, uh, a quick service concept in Tennessee, and uh, this particular concept won a Malcolm Baldrige that's award. Right. So yeah. um, that's a, the only one that ever did. I the think, only one that ever did. It's, it's very prestigious. Essentially, it recognizes that they have systems and procedures to ensure very high level of quality. Um, so, uh, and PALS has been a follow of restaurantowner.com and restaurant startup and growth, I can proudly say, but this is about Philip. And if Philip's, if you're up there uh, at PALS, um, I got to believe you're not only a culture guy, but you're a strong systems guy too. Yeah, I've been there twice actually, and I recommend it to anybody who talks to me about it. Talk about systems because, uh, we, you know, our three pillars, what we talk about is culture, which you've hit, financial acumen, which I'd like to hear about your perspective on that, but systems, uh, consistency to make sure things go the way you want them to go the same way every day. It applies to cost control. It applies to guest experience. But you, you teach us a little bit about that now. So I really started in the business after I got into the restaurants. I started into the marketing business of restaurants, right? And I started really doubling down on learning about marketing, getting people through the door. But then I quickly realized one thing. Marketing gets people in the door. Operations brings people back, right. okay? And that right there made me really appreciate and understand systems and operations. Mm -hmm. Because if I was a great marketer and I got people excited about coming in and my operations fell through, then that would be an issue. 
And so with that, with because I no one wants to I, actually, I'm just not I'm just not in the way of where I really want systems and operations. I'm more of a creative, mm-hmm. right? But when I started understanding the value of it is when I started really taking a look at it and say, okay, these are these things are a must. And so we have tons of different systems and operations, but we'll, what we don't do, do systems overload because the guest experience is still number one for us. Mm-hmm. We use tools like Asana, which is great. Uh, you know, you have issues where you say, hey, uh, hey, Billy, I need you to start doing this or hey, I need you to take care of this. And then Billy doesn't write it down. Billy forgets it, all these sort of things. We use Asana, which is a task manager. It becomes Billy's task. We put a due day on it. He clicks it. We have reoccurring tasks. You know, every Tuesday, this needs to get done. It lives in their pocket. They check it off. And then we have, that's how expansion's possible is with your systems and operations that we have an Evernote, you know, the end of the shift note. Everything now is so cloud and so tech-based. There's so many tools that make systems and operations so much easier than ever before. We really don't live in the world now where you have to handwrite and and have a printed checklist for everything. Mm -hmm. You can take everything on the cloud, me at my house, especially with point of sales. I can take a look at sales. I can look at comps. I can look at the PPA. I can look at trends. I can see, you know, are my managers actually doing their tasks? Are they commenting on their tasks? There's so many tools out there now. Again, one of the easiest times to be a restaurateur and a concept creator, but also one of the hardest times because you truly have to be extraordinary to, to make an impact. You just have to be open-minded. Did you go to the Chicago show? Are you a restaurant owner? Did you go to the Chicago show last year? Did you go the year before? Have you ever been? Sure. If the answer is no, if you're not reading, if you're not listening to podcasts like this, if you're not going to restaurantowner.com, if you're not going to the Chicago show to see what the industry is doing, then what do you expect? Well, the, yeah, the problem with that is no one then would be embracing change. And if you don't embrace change, that's when it comes up and beats on you later. <laughs> and you're always in second place. And things are changing so quickly right now. It's crazy. Um, you decided to get into the breakfast space. Right. Uh, super competitive. Not that everything isn't competitive right now, but uh, breakfast is competitive. So tell me about your thinking going into that and then you're thinking about differentiating yourself from every other competitor who is trying to get that grab and go or that sit down breakfast right. dollar. So I'll start with how we created the concept because I think some value can be added to the listeners. If you're at home right now and you, you have a concept, you want to create a new concept, or if you want to get into the restaurant business, I'd ask you, okay, if you have a concept and you think that this sort of food or fusion food or whatever whatever it is that you want to bring to the table is going to have rating fans, if you want to take that, you need to test it before you spend all the time, money, and energy focus that it creates to create a concept. I'll tell you our version of that so you can get a better idea. At King's Beer Garden, what we started doing is a kolache pop-up. Kolaches, if you're not familiar, like a glorified pigs in the blanket. Okay, mm-hmm. We have incredible sausages. You know, you you make some dough, put the sausages in, put some cheese, make some fresh fruit jams. So we did that. We did that for a year and a half. The lines were out the door. We did them, you know, every couple of months on Saturday. We would sell a thousand, a thousand five hundred kolaches. So I tested the breakfast space in my own restaurant space. I created a concept within a concept, okay? And I tested this for a year and a half. After, and I got their emails. I got their database. I got I got them. I already created another Facebook and an Instagram. We did not own a restaurant, a new restaurant. We didn't own a new concept. I tested and built a, a loyal fan base a year and a half before even thinking about asking the bank for money. Great research. That's and after that, great. after that, I said, okay, I know the Kalachis work and look at this fan base that we create. A couple thousand people. 
you know, three, 4,000 emails, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But then I said, okay, what is the breakfast space doing right now? So I went to, I went to LA, I went to Vegas. I started looking online. Easy. Again, Google search, best breakfast restaurants in America, very simple. And I started looking and I was like, you know, I have to make this concept more than just kolaches. And then we built a brand that kolaches were part of the segments, about 12% of our sales right now. But now we have egg sandwiches. We have incredible famous dip croissants. We're just on the Washington Post featured about uh, Houston's iconic breakfast concept. Mm -hmm. And we built this incredible base of people that were excited already that I knew I could fall back on and they would, would come to my opening. And then we did the research also to figure out how do we make this brand a 20, uh, we opened in 2019, a 2018 brand. Mm -hmm. Not something that you'd have found 10 years ago, but something that has an extra 10 years left in it. Mm -hmm. So when we started mm -hmm. in 2018, we got 10 years, right? The 2030 or whatever it takes. But I don't want to go backwards and do do a concept that would have survived in 2005. It's not going to survive in 2018. The times are changing, as you said, mm -hmm. faster sure. than ever before. And so I wanted to create something that had long legs. Well, this also just proves that uh, successful concepts come from operators that are students of the industry, that are willing to take the time and actually study habits of people, put in the time, and whether it's travel, whether it's online, but study and learn. And that's what I'm, I see is that the most successful people are the ones that are continually learning. It's not, the, it's not as sexy. Right. It's like it, it, you got to get in the plane. You got to look online. You got to look through the research. You got to do all these sort of things. I mean, my God, it would it would be so great if I was like, oh, I'm going to create this concept. Bank's going to give me all this money, line out the door. I'm going to cash the checks and and I didn't have to do anything. I just, you know, just write a concept down, make a huge assumption it's going to work. And the, but it doesn't work that way. It just, it just it, I mean, it sounds great. It just doesn't happen. It does not work that yeah, way. I was going to say, know I, that I hope people have made a, a note of that, that hope is not a business yes. plan. Kids do not do that at home. <laughs> It'd be a lot nicer, but you know that's just not the way it works. So and then you championed this idea. Walk Barry through that because uh, we talked this through. You've championed the idea of how you held on to after the research, after it was done, the brand broadened from Kalachis to the whole breakfast experience. Right. And then how did you uh, develop the concept with the end in mind? Yeah. Because this concept opened up looking like it already had 50 units. Yeah, people ask us that all the time. We get 10, 15 franchise phone calls a month. We're not franchising the egg house, but what I realized from my research, and here's an incredible tool right now, is design matters, okay? If you think that you can open up like a rinky-dink, half-budget sort of place now, you've got no shot. Design matters more than anything now. Food, we already, we're already going to think that you have incredible food. Drinks, we're going to already imagine you have incredible drinks. So if you don't have incredible food, incredible drinks, incredible service, you got no shot anyways. But the design really matters. When I started doing my research, I realized, oh my God, look at the designs of these places. I mean, it looks it, it just incredible from the details of the floor into the wallpaper. In, in, in my case, floral. You know, my, my wife and I got engaged and married at the Wynn in Las Vegas, right? And so we really um, like floral. Well, I'm wearing a floral short right now. And so we really started seeing how consumers interact with the design. And the most, the, the busiest, the most consistent concepts, the ones that had legs, really understood that the guest experience and design and atmosphere mattered. Yes. And you could see how much time, energy, and thoughtfulness they spent on that. Now my egg house, we do about, we were 2,000 square feet, uh, 1.6 million in sales. So huge sales per square foot. The capacity is how many? The seats? Uh, like 41, That's 42, okay. right? And so a lot of our business is grab and go, but a lot of diners eat there, mm -hmm. right? 
And what I wanted to do when you walk into the concept, it's white, it's bright, it's yellow, a lot of natural light, most of it, floral wallpaper. Go look at our Instagram at Egghouse and take a look, E-G-G-H-A-U-S, take a look at post about us or our post and understand that what we're trying to do is influence people by when they see a photo that they have to go there, that they just have to be there. And it is the cheapest, most effective marketing of all time. Because if I can influence you to pull out your phone and take a photo of that dish or take a photo of that wallpaper wall, right? You've just now done the, the core of marketing, which is word of mouth, right? That person takes the photo. They have two, 300 people that follow them or 2,000, 100,000, whatever it is. You're saying, I love this place without even having to say it. And now the marketing expands. Yes. You don't have to do a TV commercial. My God, never do a newspaper. Mm -hmm. But spend that time and energy on designing your dishes, that you, your plateware is very important now, the design experience where people feel compelled to share it with their friends. If you do that, you'll already be 50% ahead of everyone else. Excellent. And I love that comment that in today's competitive marketplace, people are going to assume quality, service, cleanliness. So the basics of the business are basically like today, just a price of admission. That's that, right. That just got you into the ballpark. If you're not going to have that well-rounded concept, as you very well explained, you're just not going to be competitive. Good for you. Has anyone ever been back to a pretty good place? Not anymore? No, not anymore. When do you ever go back to a place? Oh, you know, that place was okay. I can't wait to go back. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> you have so much now. Like We have so much excess. You can get any food, any time, any place. So it only makes sense for you to be very thoughtful and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I have to do the research. I have to think from A to Z, from the moment somebody walks in to the moment somebody leaves, a consistent brand story, that, that story of when I look at your website, when I look at your social media, when I have that dish in front of me, the plateware, it's a consistent, complete brand story that people are looking for. And for those listeners who are thinking about getting into this business or the new operator, this is all great advice, but one point you need to take away, it's your repeat customer is going to keep you in business. Yes. It's going to allow you to open the doors tomorrow, and it's going to keep you in business five years from now. Right. The one-off customer is not – you're losing money on the one-off customer after you put all the time and effort into right. marketing and every other expense. Well, sure. That's exactly right. That, that terminology, ROC – equals uh, ROI is what's right. It's the return of the customer that equals your return on investment. So the more people can do what Philip obviously has been doing so well, which is make the operation so consistent and so compelling that the guest is not only satisfied, but compelled to picture it, spread the word, and basically become your marketing department. That's right. One of the things that we talked about, Philip, uh, offline before we uh, came into the recording booth, and I'd like you to uh, talk to us a little bit more about is the the D word, the uh, controversial third-party delivery um, issues that are arising, very controversial. However, you're going to have to deal with this new world for a long time in your career. Clearly, you do your research, your homework, and you think about what's next uh, in terms of reinventing uh, your own concept. So, you know, what's your take on it from a perspective of a young new operator who's having to consider how this fits into your business model? So understanding the economics is really important of it. So think about this. Your food cost is 30%, okay? Then your Uber Eats or DoorDash delivery fee is 30%. You're already 60% out the gate, okay? Yeah. Then you still have staff. You still have all these sort of things. You're at, at the end of everything, you're at 80 to 90%. You've got 10% left, right? That 10%, if the order's messed up, it's over. So 
With that being said, you have to understand that this is not a revenue driver for you. Incremental sales is what they want to argue. Yes, incremental sales. This is a marketing tool, in my opinion, yes. that what you're trying to do is get your food in front of somebody so compelled, put a flyer in it, give them an offer, give them something, because your goal is not to have this, this Uber Eats customer. Your goal is to have this Uber Eats customer try your brand, love your brand, and come into your store. Yeah. Where, if they come into your store, then you can make money because your economics of a store is not built on a third-party delivery. Imagine if 100% of your business was built on third-party delivery. You still got rent. You still got lights. You still got food costs. You have to have someone making this. Your economics weren't built that way. So people are doing it because they have to, just like with Facebook and anything else. I agree. Every person should do it. But your goal is to not make it where it is the end-all, be-all, savior solution. We saw that with Groupon. If you've, if, you've been, if you've been part of the business, you have seen people live and die on Groupon mm -hmm. where they, hey, come in for 50% off of my restaurant mm -hmm. and restaurants would stay there for a year because it brought in revenue. But what happened to those restaurants? They all closed because you can't survive with those margins. Right. And so I agree that you need to do it, but you need to think about a way to make it impactful for that guest to come back. Let them know who you are and what you're doing. See if you can get their information and compel them to come. And my goodness, do not put anything on the menu that's not going to travel well. 54% of customers that get this food and it's not hot, it's not delicious, they make a brand decision about you and they're definitely not coming back. So if you don't have food to travel well, don't even do it. Limit your menu and make sure that it's a success. One thing I did know till recently is you can actually increase the price that you charge on Uber Eats or anything else different from your menu as a bit of a convenience fee. So that can help off balance a little bit of the cost. So for example, if something's selling for $10 uh, you know, inside your store, you can charge 11 to the Uber Eats customer. That will help a little bit with your margins. I actually didn't know that till recently. And so there's ways, but again, don't make it something that your business relies on. Make it another marketing tool in this day and age that you need to do. Well, and it sounds to me that you are pretty bullish, excuse the term, on the dining experience. Um, and if I'm hearing you correctly, you're going to have to provide what I guess I call, you know, what academics call a hedonistic experience uh, more than the food. Um, it's going to be have to be a, a, a pleasurable dining experience uh, in totality with yep. ambience and everything else. So you've got good design. You've got beautiful uh, decorations. You've got very interesting food. How does that all come together so that I want to spend time there and come back three, four times a week into your concept? That's where the consistency comes in, right? Is where everything comes together in such a way where people feel comfortable to come over and over again. Right. And a lot of consistency start with, starts with your staff. Your staff has to develop those relationships. They have to be able to foster those regulars. Mm -hmm. If people, if you have incredible design, incredible food, and you've got staff that's apathetic, or, you know, you ever been to a bar in like a major city and you ask for a regular drink and they look at you like, why are you not ordering one of our specialty cocktails? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you try to order something regular and they look at you like, right. you're just, you just have no idea what you're doing, right? That, that you don't go back to that place either. Mm -hmm. And they could have the most incredible cocktails 
cocktails and incredible atmosphere. So your staff really brings that in with that consistency. With that consistency being there and making people feel welcomed and appreciated, that's how I believe you get people to come in multiple times, right? Mm -hmm. Is your staff really drives consistency, <laughs> consistency of food, but also consistency of how we treat people and make them feel significant to come back to your restaurant. So it sounds to me like it's uh, more, it's even a communal space to use that term. Uh, favorite brew pub that I go to, I go there, the people behind the bar know me, they chat me up, they talk to me about what's going on, and I feel like, hey, this is sort of a home away from home. Um, I, am I getting it a little bit? I think that we're going backwards in that sense, mm -hmm. going back into how we want to be treated. I mean, mm -hmm. how cool was it automatic dialing or, you know, talking to somebody that was a robot? You know, when they first came out, it's probably cool for three months. Right. Now you call some, you call a, a business and if you hear, you know, the robotic, you know, whatever machine, yeah. you just get so mad. Right. And so we're looking back at it and saying, okay, customer experience is mattering more than anything now where people really want to feel valued. Will people, will, will people want to feel as though that their dollar goes further or their experience goes further and their staff is treating them better and making them feel a certain way. So I think in that way, we're going back into how it used to be where relationships really matter. Absolutely. So philosophically, mm -hmm. um, uh, in your, in your opinion, um, is the fact that we're just so oriented toward technology and our communication is so impersonal. We text back and forth. I right. think that the restaurant is becoming an important, um, social factor to just for our own mental health and our own yes. feeling of community. Yes, and that's why I see bars doing really well. I'm very bullish on bars because bars are a gathering place. You can have all the technology in the world, but you still want to meet people. Mm -hmm. You still want to go hang out. Your hangout space really matters. Now, the first question you got to ask yourself is what type of restaurant or what type of operation am I? Am I a convenience operation? Am I a gathering spot? Mm -hmm. Am I a full service restaurant, QSR, whatever it is? And then you have to be whatever that is, right? Then you have to double down. You have to make sure, okay, I'm that. If I'm a, if I'm a convenience place where people just come in, they get a healthy meal or whatever it is, then you got to be super quick, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're not there chatting up the person in line and trying to develop a relationship with them. I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be really upset. Then you're a real convenience place. So you got to know who you are and who your customer is. Once you know that, you have to be that. Can we check um, back into more of how all of this works with your marketing strategy? Because you mentioned a couple of very good things. Marketing, um, third-party delivery can be looked at really as more of a marketing thing rather than an initial revenue source. I, I, I really like that approach. You talked about consistency of operations that really impacts marketing. This is what you're telling your story. With two brands that you manage now, uh, what are the other means that you use to keep marketing and and how does that impact the budget? How much of revenue is typically budgeted for marketing? So when we look at marketing, the number one marketing that we will try to focus on is direct impact marketing, where I don't have to use a gatekeeper to pay them first, right? So I want to I want to spend money 100%, and this used to be a lot different for me, but 100% of my money that I want to spend is directly on customers walking through my door. Excellent. Now, people would say at first, well, you already have that customer. <laughs> you already, you already, why would you spend money on people that are coming already through your door? Because of how important it is for them to come back. Right. Blanket <laughs> advertising and blanket marketing, in my opinion, is not something I want to do. Because blanket marketing and advertising is like, okay, I'm a shotgun approach everybody and hope it sticks with somebody. And then I can't track who comes through the door. We have a QSR egg house gourmet. So what I try to do with that marketing, I'm very big into Instagram and that marketing. And I spend my Instagram budget on targeted marketing. I'll take a photo, I'll test it. 
wow, this photo's got a ton of likes. It's performing 90% better. I'll, I'll spend money on that photo, and then I'll look between 18 and 35-year-olds, predominantly women, okay. that like coffee, that like breakfast, and I will spend money on them. But the marketing that I do already started with the concept. In the concept, I wanted people to feel a certain way, a certain experience, a certain vibe, a certain music, where they would feel comfortable, take photos, bring their friends. On the full service side of things, that's where that direct impact really matters. It really matters how my staff is dressed. It really matters on the size of the beers. You know, we have the big leaders, the Das Boots. It really matters that we, or we, all of our tables are mostly communal tables right? Where you can bring in 10, 15 people at a price point that makes sense. And that marketing, what we do in store direct just this month in September, I sent a message to, we have about 80,000 people. September for us is a slower month. It's right before Oktoberfest. It's right after our all you can eat sausage month in Fest. I sent out an email and a Facebook post to everybody on our list saying, come in as many times as you want in September, get a free appetizer or a free dessert. And, the, you know, we listed the four, uh, the four appetizers that make the most financial success to us okay. and our two famous strudels, right? They can come in every single day in September and get a free appetizer or dessert, one per table. That marketing, they'll spend a couple thousand dollars for sure, sure. right? But it's to people that already matter to us, right. right? It's directly impacting their visitation. They're coming back. I'm adding value. They're appreciative. Sure. And so that marketing there is you think that if I got that email, I would bring you. Of course, I'd bring you. I'd bring you. Hey, let's go to King's. I got this offer. And that's how we look at marketing is how do we make a direct impact on people? Wonderful. That's uh, that's what we've learned uh, years ago. That's smart operators do that. Talk to the people that, you know, already like you and get them to love you. That takes them from being a satisfied customer to a loyal right. customer. And now they'll bring their friends. they about you and bring the, yeah. their friends. It, it's, it's, good, it's, good it's, simple. it's simple. It's very simple in that case, right? Because you want people that are already raving about you. I can't wait to bring you here. Right. It's incredible. You'll love this. Oh, hey, order this. Those people are going to be your guided experience. Like they're going to have a guided experience for that guest. Very they're going to take them all the way through and it's going to mean a whole lot more coming from them than it ever will be coming from you as the restaurant. So what's next? Uh, how do you see your short term or your next uh, objectives? Again, here we are. We're managing two brands. One we know is um, in the midst of franchising. The other, the breakfast lunch concept you mentioned is something you don't want to franchise. So how do you decide what you want to do next? So what I, what I want to do now that we found, I'm 27 years old. So for me, a lot of my time was spent on who do I want to become? Who am I becoming? What matters to me? Right. And so that's, you know, that's a personal thing. That's good. And just had a daughter, have a wife. She's also works in the business with me. She's my partner at Egg House. Mm -hmm. And now that I found my groove and what I want to do, for sure, it'll be expanding the Egg House. Okay. We can see that going really, really well in a lot of different markets. We've got two new locations that are coming up. And then we're franchising the Beer House, which is our big brew hall concept. And so we're really going to stick with that. You know, I do see, uh, again, I really like the bar space, but not just uh, not just a bar space, a club space. I'm talking about a bar experience place, mm -hmm. small food, drinks. So I like that. I could see myself getting into that. But we're expanding the Egg House and, and we're franchising the Beer House. That's wonderful. So, Philip, um, you know, as we get to the, uh, the tail end of, of these great conversations, um, we like to ask uh, people like you who've uh, been successful, are successful, to maybe provide some, you know, words of wisdom to those of our listeners who are thinking about getting into the business, maybe following in your tracks, um, or who are starting out. Um, do you have any just uh, 
good words of wisdom for them to uh, bear in mind as they uh, they begin this this journey that you've taken? So I've got two things. The first thing is, as cliche as it sounds, is you got to be passionate about what you do because you won't put in the time, you won't put in the hours, you won't put in the extra effort. The reason why I'm willing to do the research and the reason why I'm willing to do the travel is because I enjoy it, because I like it, right? And to be honest with you, you don't start passionate, right? I get into the business, I'm washing cars, I'm not passionate about, you know, giving out free bratwurst and starting with 45 seats, no AC, 110 degree heat. I'm mm-hmm. not passionate about that. But you have to go through it to find your passion. And then if you do, and you do find that, then you can start really focusing on that. So passion really matters because you're not going to be a successful entrepreneur in today's day and age if you're not putting in the time, effort, and energy that it requires. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it's a little branch off of that, but you've got to be an expert in your field. You've, you've, you, and you're not going to start as an expert. I, I'm 27. Of course, I'm, I'm not even close to an expert. Mm-hmm. But I'm constantly educating myself with it because I understand the value I understand the value of understanding how to make how to make customer influence. How do I become a better restaurateur? And through that journey, you'll start finding all sorts of resources and tools. Today, the information is out there. I mean, I'm so fortunate now to be in this day and age because all the information is out there. Use your tools. You can go on Pinterest and say, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on Pinterest." a brew hall or beer hall, Mm -hmm. you're going to see all these photos from beer halls across the world. You can take those photos, you can print those photos, you can bring it to your architect. I want it to look like this. Mm -hmm. Never before possible. You can take and you can look at, Mm -hmm. you can look at appetizers, you can look at these things, you can look at plating, you can develop your whole concept off the internet, bring it down and now model these people that have been in the business for years and become ultimately successful, not because of your own, but because you're modeling the greats that have done it before you. And why not cut, why not cut the line? Mm-hmm. Why sure. make all the mistakes? Just get that shortcut, get it straight there, put in the work in the front end, and you're going to be able to create a great concept. I believe that right mm-hmm. now, if you develop a QSR or a restaurant, that you can be really successful with it. But you have to do what those, the, you know, the others won't. Mm-hmm. And it's an advantage for people that have already been in business for 10 or 20 years to do that. But it's also a huge advantage to people who have never been in the business because the business has changed so much mm-hmm. that if you've been a brand around for 20 years, it's, it's really hard to adjust. Right. Yeah. So if you open up a concept now, you get to, you get to be a 2019 or 2020 concept. And that has a tremendous value. Well, great pearls of wisdom. Philip Sitter of King's Beer House, Egg House, thank you so much for all of the uh, information and conversation today. Uh, We wish you uh, continued success. So thank you so much for joining us in the corner booth. This is Chris Triple A. And Barry Schuster. Saying thanks, and we hope to see you really soon right here at the corner booth. Until then, hey, you operators out there, go make it a good shift. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.